Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45, the title of the message today is going to be, Look to Me, Saith the Lord, Isaiah 45, and I'm going to start reading with verse number 20, and I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Isaiah 45, verse 20, Assemble yourselves and come Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, that have no knowledge, that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell ye, bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no God else beside me, a just God, a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Father, help us once again as we minister this word. Give us ears to hear, and help me to speak clearly and with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I've always enjoyed reading the books in the Bible that have to do with the 8th century prophets, those that lived 800 years or so before Jesus was born. Hosea was one of them. Amos was one of them. Jonah also was one of them. But here, we're looking at a man by the name of Isaiah who was giving a very difficult task at the beginning of his ministry. The Lord asked the question, who can we send who will go for us? And Isaiah responded by saying to the Lord, here am I, send me. And Isaiah was sent to a people of which he had heard from the Lord that they would not listen to him. Imagine a calling like that. God says, I'm sending you to a people that are not going to respond to your word. They don't even want to hear what you have to say. Nevertheless, you're called to go preach to them. Isaiah lived in a time when the Assyrian Empire was at the height of their power, and they had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. Very often, the children of Israel simply incorporated the gods of the surrounding communities into their worship of the true God, and it became idolatry. It was because of that mixture of religion, people like Isaiah had to come along and preach. And I'm sure you know that religion is big business. There's a lot of money to be made in religion. All over this earth, there are people that peddle their wares. And they make lots of money off of people's belief, sometimes off of people's superstition. Acts chapter 19 says that Paul went into Ephesus and stayed several years and preached in that area. And it says that there was one man who was a silversmith who made statues for the goddess Diana in the great temple of the Ephesians. Paul was getting so many people saved that the man, I believe his name was Demetrius, he got a bunch of people together in a conspiracy and said, look, if Paul keeps preaching and people keep getting saved, that's people that are turning from purchasing our products because they're no longer worshiping the great goddess Diana, whom all of Asia and all of the world worship. 
We've got to throw this man out of here or our money will be in jeopardy. Religion is big business, folks. Big business. The Muslims know it. All across this earth, millions of dollars are raised, whether it's for terrorism or for preaching their supposedly good news of Muhammad. The Dalai Lama knows that there's a whole lot of money in religion. Look at how many Hollywood actors and actresses follow him and drop big checks in his, in his coffer. And then at the same time, it's the Jewish people raise a lot of money for their endeavors, for their hospitals, for their schools, to help support Jewish people, not to mention Christians. You know how many millions of dollars are raised every year for evangelism, for the building of buildings, for the purchasing of real estate, and things like that. So religion is big business, but what you also have to know that if it is big business, and it's a global thing, that very often the money can transform us into idol worship. That's what happened in ancient times. The ones who controlled the money very often misled people into a difficult, difficult pathway. The children of Israel mixed the truth with error. That kind of mixture leads to a divided heart, and anytime you have a divided heart, compromise comes. And with compromise, you don't have a problem with the different kinds of religion. This world is filled with superstition. And where I was just preaching, I can give you a story. Back in 1930, the Pentecostal Evangel, Christian magazine for uh, the Assemblies of God, had a story of a little Indian girl in Blue Lake, California, where I was just preaching. She was the only Christian in her family, and she was sick. The story says that some believers from Eureka, a town not too far from there, came from Eureka to Blue Lake to pray for this little girl. When they got there, all the Indian folks had contacted the medicine man. The medicine man was there. He had bells, and he was chanting in the room as the little girl laid on the bed. The Christians came in there, surrounded the bed, began to pray, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. The medicine man, he was so angry and upset that these Christians had come that he got some skillets and put some, bro some torn rags in there, set the rags on fire, walked into the bedroom and started blowing smoke on the Christians and on the girl, thinking that was going to scare the devils away. They kept praying and believing God. Medicine man then went and got a shotgun, put it at the edge of the bed, believing that the shotgun would scare the devil away. Little girl was still in that bed. Medicine man gave up and the Christians kept praying and God raised the girl up by the power of the Lord. Because the power of the Lord was present to heal because the little girl understood the truth that whosoever called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved or rescued, redeemed, or healed. False religion. I've seen all kinds of false religion in my travels around the world. I was in Peru one time and I came out of the house and hundreds of people were down on all fours crawling up to the Roman church. They believed that if they afflicted themselves and hurt themselves that somehow the saints would intercede for them up in heaven. There's a lot of money to be made in religion. There's a lot of idolatry very often that misdirects people's hearts so that they cannot see the truth. A wise man told me one time that the devil created religion to keep people from ever finding the true God. Many times, religion masks who God is. Well, this means that if you have a false God, you typically have a false 
system of ritual, and naturally you're going to have false prophets to propagate that ritual. Meaning, if I'm worshiping and adoring a God that is not real, then pretty soon I have to create my own customs in order to please that God, and then I have to tell other people about the religion in order for the religion to grow. But it was God that says here in Isaiah 45, verse 20, they that have no knowledge have set up the wood of their graven image. It's all done in ignorance, not knowing the truth. Now consider this. If you were to worship a statue, that you made with your own hands and proclaimed that that was your God. Wouldn't that seem strange to you that you can carry your God from one side of the house to the other side of the house? That you could put your God on the shelf or put him in the back seat of your car? And then if you don't like your God, you can just take your God out in the backyard, throw it down on the, on the ground, and then you can start all over and build another God. Why create a God that has eyes that cannot see? To create a God that has ears that cannot hear. Create a God that has legs but are unable to walk. To create a God that looks human-like but has no heart, has no compassion, no ability to feel. And people that worship a God like that, I really believe their compassion factor is somewhat off. One time in India, the good folks over there were taking offerings of vegetables and rice and placing them in front of a statue of their God, and behind the statue there was a hole going into that statue, and they believed when they put the sacrifices there that a spirit comes into that statue, and that spirit would almost like come alive and hear their prayers. Deception. Superstition. In Hinduism, there are so many gods there, you've probably seen documentaries of it, but they have one temple over there dedicated to the rat. Literally millions. Maybe that'd be an embellishment. Thousands for sure, hundreds of thousands of rats inhabit this temple and it's forbidden to kill them because they believe in reincarnation. It's a possibility that the rats might be a relative or a former neighbor. And these rats are drinking from the water and falling in the gutters and climbing up on top of everything and sick people from all over India come to this temple just to be able to sip the water that the rats have been in in symbolic nature of the rat God believing that they will be healed. I'm going to say it again. Man told me that the devil created religion to keep people from ever finding the true God. It's hard to be compassionate if you serve a God that's not compassionate. And it's hard to have a heart for those that are lost if you serve a God that doesn't have a heart at all. What good is a graven image if that image cannot speak to you, if that image cannot see you in your pain, and if that image cannot hear you when you cry out to him? It's better to have somebody that loves you. As the scripture says, Jesus is touched by the feeling of our, of our infirmity. When you pass through a trial, he sees what you're going through. He's not... He's not you know, ignoring you, neglecting you. He's not disregarding you. He's interested in you. And he's walking the path with you because he dwells in your heart by faith. And he's there not to cause you to believe you're insignificant, but he wants you to know that he cares. Evangelist named Randy Webb one time was driving, and he was in a little town and accidentally ran over a dog. 
He was coming down the road in his truck, and the dog ran out in, in front of him before he could even stop. He hit that dog, and his heart was just broken, and he got out, and the dog was dead. And he was wondering, who in the world does this dog belong to? And within a few minutes, he hears a voice, a little boy running down the hill screaming, You killed Blackie! You killed Blackie! And that little boy was just a crying, and he was screaming at that man, you killed Blackie. And when the, he was thinking, the preacher was thinking, what am I going to say to this little kid whose heart is broken with this animal laying here in the middle of the road? The little kid got all the way down there to where the evangelist was, got up close, looked at the dog, and said, you're not Blackie, and hauled off and kicked him and said, you old dumb dog, and ran back up the hill. Well, that's not what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to see people's pain and hear about people's problem and then say, you old dumb dog. You're not connected to me. You're not related to me, so I don't even care about your problem. God's not like that at all. God is very serious about what you're passing through. And so ignorance very often is what leads to bad religion and the worship of idols, and the creation of idols. The worship of these idols very often create people who very much are like the idols that they worship. They have eyes they can't see. There are a lot of people in this world that have eyes and can see naturally, but they can't see spiritually. There are a lot of people that can hear you call their name, but they can't hear spiritual things. They don't have a feeling for it because they're dead to these things, like the very thing that they worship, and your God does not have to be doesn't have to be something like a sport or, 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 or somebody that you worship because you care about them a lot. Your God could be anything. Anything that takes your time, your money, and your energy can become your God if God takes second place. God wants to be number one in your life. The Bible says here in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 20 that in ignorance, have no knowledge, they set up their God. The man in the Bible by the name of Solomon, he's known as the wisest person in the Old Testament scriptures for sure. Solomon was not born in the happiest marital state. His dad, David, was king for 40 years over Israel. He fell in love with a woman that was married to another man, had an adulterous relationship with her. She got pregnant. Once she was pregnant, he then conspired with other people and got her husband killed in battle. And then David took Bathsheba, brought Bathsheba in the palace as if he hadn't done anything wrong other than get her husband killed in battle. So God sent a prophet named Nathan. Nathan said, you've done wrong. It's not right. God's not happy. So an infant in Bathsheba's womb ended up dying. Well, the next child born was Solomon. So Solomon had nothing to do with the circumstances of his birth. He didn't have anything to do with the choice that his mom and dad made. None of us have anything to do with the circumstances of our birth. We're here because mom and dad or somebody, you know, had, had a child and here we are. You can't go back and change your past. But, but what happened was, as Solomon grew older, he grew up in wealth, power, prestige because of his dad. When dad got to the point where he was about to die, Solomon's older brother Adonijah tried to take the throne from dad. David heard about it. David said, get my mule, dress it up in all of its royal 
attire and garments and all that and put Solomon on top of that mule and, and take the mule and pull it all the way through town and scream out, behold the king of Zion, behold the king of Zion. Everybody knew that Solomon was to be the newly appointed king. Adonijah was afraid. Well, Solomon had an objective. He wanted to build God a temple, a house. He did. And when he dedicated it, God came to him in a dream and said, Solomon, what would you like? Solomon said, Lord, if you're going to grant me one prayer, make me wise. God said, Solomon, because you did not ask for money and wealth, I'm not only going to make you wise and give you understanding, I'm going to give you prosperity in abundance. And so the Bible says he was so wise that people came from all over the earth to hear his wisdom. He could speak proverbs about insects and trees, people. Thousands of proverbs that, we, that, that, that he gave, hundreds that we have collected in the Bible. And so this man with all of his wisdom, the scripture says in 2 Kings chapter 11, when he got older, he fell in love with strange women. It means women of another culture, women that didn't have a covenant with God. I mean, he was like Captain Kirk on Star Trek. He slept with everybody. He didn't care if they were green or whatever planet they came from. He, he didn't care. He fell in love with them. Now, here's the thing that's amazing. For each wife that he loved, he built a temple for them to worship their own God. This man in his own age, old age, Scripture says because he loved these strange women, in his old age, they turned his heart from God to idolatry. This man had enough wisdom to create proverbs about bugs, vegetation, and the human species. Yet this man allowed his heart to be turned in the direction of iniquity. You know what that means? That means it's possible for you to be wise in one area of your life and be a fool in another. That you can be a genius when it comes to... to to stringing together a sentence and understanding all of the grammar and the syntax of how a, a, a sentence ought to be put together but yet know nothing at all about how to be a good Christian. It's possible to be able to figure out a problem of trigonometry, to plow a field and understand how a Cummings engine is put together, but yet when it comes to the simple things of living for God, be absolutely foolish about it. That's what happened to Solomon man had all of this wisdom and let women turn his heart in a wrong direction. But, but lest we beat the, the Solomon bush too long, have there been anything or any people, certain things in your life that have turned your heart from God from time to time? Maybe you loved God at one point and suddenly you found yourself going in the opposite direction. Then you yourself fall in the same category at that time just like Solomon. Bible says those that set up an idol of wood have no knowledge. Well, this was the problem of Mr. Solomon. He thought that what he was doing was right, and in his own eyes he was justified because he loved the women and he promised to care for them. But justification does not come by doing sinful things. Now notice in Isaiah 45 what the Lord says in verse number... 21, at the end, he says, there's no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. A just God. That's where we get our word justice from. A righteous God. 
That doesn't mean a fair God. Fairness to you and fairness, there's no such thing as fairness with God. God is just. He's righteous. I mean, God doesn't have to, you know how we are when, when, when you've got people and you're giving out candy and you want to give candy to the kids and to different people. You want to make sure you've got enough candy for everybody. If you don't have enough candy for everybody, nobody can have it because it has to be fair. God's not like that at all. God will give candy to the children of Israel and not give it to the Hittites if he wants to. That's how he is. Everything is based upon the plan of God. But we need to understand this evening that if God is just and God justifies, that means that we who are justified, as it says in verse 25 of Israel, we're justified only in the Lord. You're made righteous by your connection with God, not by what you do. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, we are not justified by works, but justified by faith. You are not made righteous by your good deeds. Now, there are a lot of people that are good in this world, good in the sense that they don't create problems. But, but listen to this. If baking bread and cookies could give you favor with God and cause God to be pleased with you, oh, my, I'd have Anna given us all classes and lessons on baking Every day of the week. If, if, if cutting grass could give us favor with God and make God say, I love you more because you, you've cut so many lawns. I'd have all of us out here following the Fangmire boys as they're doing yards and working to save up their money. Good works don't save us. It's our faith in God that justifies us. So we were all born as sinners. The only way to deal with the sin is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be justified in the eyes of God, you've got to accept his son. Because there's nothing you can ever do to make, make God feel any different about you other than believing in the son. He's not going to love you because you do nice things. Well, I mean, I helped the old lady across the street. Well, that's nice. She, Madam needed help. I helped the elderly gentleman at the grocery store carry his bags out to the, to the car. That's good. You should have done that. Well, I called some people on the telephone that I knew was discouraged, and I gave them a scripture and encouraged them. That's fine, but that doesn't save you. That doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't even make you a better person. What makes us good is the fact that we have a connection with the Lord. Paul even asked the question, what shall we say of Abraham? Was he justified by his own works? If he was, he has a reason to boast in the presence of God. But if he was justified by grace, by faith, then the only thing he can do is say, Lord, thank you that I'm saved. See, each day you wake up and you know the gospel and you know Christ is your Savior, you should just be grateful that you've heard the good news. Can you imagine what your life or my life would have been like had we been raised in a world where we didn't know God but had only known false religion? There are little girls at the age of eight that are sold in India to be temple prostitutes. The parents sell them for a few dollars just so they can have a little bit of money for bread. Can you imagine that with a little girl? There are people all over this world who shave their head and join uh, little uh, Buddhist monasteries and things like that so that they can try to get close to God by sitting down with their legs crossed and just mumbling and chanting, hoping that somehow they'll be able to, to, to cause their old nature, that beast nature of the flesh, to be subjected to themselves. It never happens. The only thing that can deal with your inside person 
is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have appetites and desires that are ungodly. The only way to deal with those appetites and desires is to bring them to the foot of the old rugged cross and allow God to do it. And God is the one that said in Isaiah 45, there's nobody else like me. Don't even bother trying to compare me to anybody. Allah isn't like God. The ancient Hittite gods, Baal, they're not like God. The Egyptian gods of old, they're nothing like our God. So whatever adjective we can use to describe our God, I give you my word, you will run out of adjectives before you could ever run out of descriptions for God. That's how wonderful he is. You say, well, God's good. Well, that's not enough. Well, God's holy. That's still not enough. God's almighty. There's still more to say. God can do anything. Yep, and you're just getting started. Even the ones that bow before the throne, they say, holy, holy, holy. They bow down and they look up and they say, oh my, he's more majestic than he was the last time I bowed down. Holy, holy, holy. And they go through all of that for all of eternity. Because there's nobody to compare to God. So on your best day, you still find that you serve a God that is better than your understanding ever can be. But you love him with your whole heart. Isaiah 45, verse 22, it says, Look to me and be saved, all of the earth. Look to me. Look. That word obviously signifies vision. See? But it also hints at something directional. Because that means there's some object upon which you should focus your attention. And he says it right there. Look to me. He's the direct object. In contrast to the image mentioned in verse 20, in contrast to the idol. Get your eyes off of this world. This world is sinful. This world can't redeem you. This world can't save you. God says, look to me. That's what he says, look to me. Now, I said that has to do with vision and direction. If you were walking down the road and somebody called out your name and they were kind of, Far away, they yelled out, Olivia! Then the first thing Olivia's going to do is start doing this to try to figure out where the voice is coming from. Because she immediately doesn't know which direction it's coming from. But if I would have yelled out, Olivia, look up! Given direction. If I'd said, watch out, look down! She'd look down at her feet. If I said, look to the left, she would have did that. So the direction came with the command. And this is what the Lord says. Look to me. Take your eyes off of the things that this old ugly world is providing for you in your vision and look to me and be saved. Not going to be saved following other gods. That's what he's saying. And Isaiah is pretty clear. If you think that another religion can save you and that all religions are the same, you need to read the book again. Read the book again. It doesn't say that. It says, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Powerful. Yeah. Now, you may have a marginal rendering in your Bible that says, in the place of the word look, turn. Because the Hebrew word also signifies turn, but it's still the same. You've got to reorient. You've got to change direction. So turn unto me and be saved. There in that verse you have a teaching or a doctrine of repentance because repentance means to turn and walk away from it. Go in the opposite direction. You haven't truly repented if you haven't changed your life. 
People say, well, I'm sorry I did it. You're sorry if you stop it. You ever had somebody tell you they're sorry about something and they turn around and do it again? We've all had people do that before, see? People do that all the time. True repentance means to turn and make a 180 degree commitment to another direction and not turn back. Now, you know as well as I do, none of us are perfect. But the, the truth of repentance truly is that there should be godly sorrow and we should move in a different direction. Salvation comes to those who turn. So Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. He preached and he said, Jesus is the one that died for you. Jesus is the one that saves. And the people listened. They said, Peter, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. 3,000 people were saved. One man preached one sermon. 3,000 people came to acknowledge Christ was a Savior because they chose to respond to what they heard. They reacted to the truth. Repented. Now, there was a man that you probably heard of, a very popular preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Well, Charles Spurgeon's testimony of how he became a Christian was that on one cold, wintry day, he was making his way through the woods, going down a path, trying to get to some particular location, but the snow was coming down so much to get out of the weather, he turned into a small Methodist chapel. He said he got into the church. He said there was so much snow outside that the preacher himself didn't make it to the church. He was snowed in. He said there couldn't have been more than nine people in service when he got there. And he said he went, found a place, and sat down. He said the man that got up to preach was not a minister, but he was a layman in the church. And they had to have somebody get up and give some kind of message in that service. And he said the man took for his text, Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. And he said the man was not eloquent. He said he could, couldn't get his sentences together. He said he kind of stuttered. But he said he had a way of preaching that verse and looking at the people, and he just hung on that word, look. Tell him if you need an answer, got to look up. He said he kept saying, look, and then he pointed to me, as Spurgeon was saying. He said he pointed to me as a little teenager and said, young man, you look miserable today, but I can take care of your misery if you simply look up to Jesus. He can put a smile on your face. And Spurgeon said, like clouds of confusion and despair went away, and he realized the gospel truth for the first time in his life. Spurgeon went on and pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle for nearly 40 years. He's the only preacher I think I know of that from the time he started preaching until he died, he never knew what it was like to preach to a small crowd. Even when he was in his first church, the New Park Street pulpit, he had thousands of people at that church. Metropolitan Tabernacle had more than six or 7,000 people. Long before there ever was what we call a mega church, he had one every single week. From the 1850s until the time that he died in 1892, I believe. But it all started with a verse of scripture. Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And a preacher saying to him, you look miserable, but look to God. So there's nobody like God. And to have him, all of us know this evening that he is certainly Someone that cares enough about us that he'll protect us and guide us. Have you found God to be a protector? I have. I found him to be a savior. 
some of the most difficult circumstances of life, I found that God has been there to help us, <clears throat> to guide us when I didn't have answers. The only thing I could do was pray, read the Bible, and then get up and believe that the decisions I made were going to be godly. You'll find that God guides your every step sometimes. Yeah. And when trouble comes, he looks after you. Scripture says you walk through the fire, you won't be burned, but he lets the fire come. It says you pass through the waters, they won't overtake you. But he allows you to believe the waters are about to overtake you. But yet you keep walking with God and God puts up an invisible wall to protect you like he did the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea. There are moments in your life where God may re remove the, the, the sense of his presence from around you, but he never goes away. And it's just like the little kid that is crying out in the middle of the night and afraid to go to bed because they're afraid of the night or they had a bad dream and mom and dad comes and lays there next to them and the little kid feels so good because the presence of mom and dad, they got their arm around them and then they fall asleep that way and then pretty soon mom or dad removes their arm and gets up and goes back in the other room and the little child stays asleep. The sense of the physical presence has been removed but mom and dad are still just down the hall. They haven't left. And that's what God does for us. He looks after us in the exact same way. The National Geographic carried a story a few years back. Had a beautiful picture of what I think is a good image of protection. We think of God. Yellowstone Park had some terrible wildfires. And so afterwards, the forest rangers made their trek up some of the mountains to try to look at the damage. And when they got up there, they found in one location that there was a bird literally petrified in ashes, standing there kind of in a statuesque kind of a position, obviously burned to death. And it so saddened that ranger, he didn't even want to look at it, he took a stick and he knocked it over. But when he knocked it over, immediately three little chicks came scurrying out from under that petrified ash. He looked up in the tree and realized that a nest was up there. But that the mama bird somehow, instinctively, knowing that that smoke was toxic and poisonous, one by one flew those little chicks down to the base of the tree and then stood over those little chicks. And when the fire came right up on her and the blaze was upon her, even though she had the ability to fly away, she remained steadfast. Even when the heat singed her and left her in a petrified condition. She sacrificed herself in order to protect her little chicks. Then you think about Christ. Jesus suffered for you. Jesus suffered for me. Jesus endured the wrath, the fiery wrath that should have come to us. The judgment, the penalty that should have come to us. He endured the beatings there in the judgment hall, then bore his cross to Calvary, fell on top of that cross, was nailed to it, hung between earth and heaven, and he did that so that each one of us could find a refuge under the shelter of the Lord's wings. Why would anybody want to leave a God like that? Oh, my. And the beautiful thing about the Lord is he died, but yet out of the ashes three days later he came back to life. The power of the resurrection. If a mama bird has that kind of instinct, don't you think the God that put the instinct in a mama bird is so much bigger and better 
and the mama bird. So here we are this Easter. We've got a God that cares about us. But the question is, do you care about him? Look to me, saith the Lord. Be saved all the ends of the earth. Let's stand. Oh my, I tell you, it's good to know God. Why anybody would want to live in this world without God, I don't know. But I think it's in Proverbs where Solomon had wrote, and he said, if you want to learn some wisdom, he said, go to the ant. Look at the ant, how the ant provides for himself. So much of creation speaks clearly to us and helps us to see that there is a wonderful God who has a son that died you and died for me. Whatever you believe in God for, whatever your prayer request is, God does answer. But remember, when we depart from this place, but never from his presence, we are to be his witnesses wherever we go. On your job, be a Christian. In your speech, in your lifestyle. The way you conduct yourself. Go on vacation, be a Christian on vacation. Because you never know who's paying attention to your life. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, God, we love you tonight. Lord, you know how happy I am to be able to unburden my heart and to share this message with these wonderful people. There is no other means of salvation other than you. It is the Holy Ghost that comes and brings regeneration and brings new birth. It is the Spirit of God that leads us. because you said, those that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. God, help us to be better Christians every day. And Lord, if any of us in here tonight have not been living as we ought to live, God, reach down in our hearts and change it now. We repent of our sins. God, we're sorry for what we've done, how we've lived, how we've displeased you. But from this moment forward, God, let this life of mine be one that brings you joy, as the word says, a wise son makes his father glad. God, help each one of us to keep a smile on your face. This we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.